Good morning, it's lovely to see you. And uh, we are carrying on a series that we started last week, Sex and Sexuality. I'm going to pray, then we're going to start. Lord Jesus, we do, um, we do thank you for safe arrival of Jacob. And we marvel at new life as we marvel at all life. And we just want to acknowledge that you are the author of all life. And as the author of life, you are the one who gets to say how it should be. And as we come to look at your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would line up our minds and our thinking with what you say in your word, because you are the author of life. You created us. You know best. So, Lord, I pray, would you help us by your Holy Spirit this morning as we look at this issue? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to look at sex and sexuality, part two, and we're going to go to that well, uh, well-renowned a famous expert, Cameron Diaz and Jude Law, who in the film, The Holiday, if you remember, had a slightly kind of, were they going to get together, weren't they going to get together, and eventually they're sitting in the car, I think she's about to go back maybe, and Cameron Diaz says, I'm not sure I can handle complicated right now. And then she reaches over and kisses Jude Law, and Jude Law says, and that doesn't make things complicated? And Cameron Diaz says the line of the film, Sex makes everything complicated, even when you don't have it. And sex and sexuality ought to be one of the most glorious things about being a man or a woman. It ought to be. And yet Cameron Diaz gets it right, that it does seem to complicate things. In many ways, it seems to ruin things. There are lots of things in this world that we could say uh, are are the main reason we could blame for the ills of the world. We could think about poverty or war or greed or selfishness or self-interest. But there is also a good case to argue that much of the misery on earth is caused around this issue of sex and sexuality. I'm thinking about things like rape. I'm thinking about things like sexual abuse. I'm thinking about the things that we read on the Me Too hashtag, like sexism, homophobia, sex trafficking, abortion, like sexually transmitted diseases, prostitutes, pimps, red light districts, revenge porn videos, like all the trouble caused by people having affairs, committing adultery, Like the fact that lots of young teenage girls now feel under pressure to sext naked photos of themselves to boys in their class. Like wives who feel under pressure in the bedroom to perform like a hooker because of what her husband is watching. Like people who are single or divorced who somehow feel second rate or somehow feel damaged goods in this world of ours. I'm thinking about those kind of things. I'm thinking about the slick marketing executives who use sex to sell everything. Absolutely everything. Most of which you don't want. Most of which won't work. Most of which certainly won't do whatever they're going to tell you it will do. Buy that new car, you'll have the perfect life. Get the perfect girl, get the perfect boy. I'm thinking about that kind of things. What about the young boys and girls made to feel miserable with life-controlling body image issues? Because comparison is the thief of joy. 
You can't be content with what you are if you keep comparing it to something which everybody else tells you is better. Comparison is the thief of joy. And our young people have seen so many perfect lives and perfect bodies on TV and in the movies and on their handsets. So hear about this for a stat. 9% of British 14-year-old boys have self-harmed in the last 12 months. 22% of British 14-year-old girls have self-harmed in the last 12 months. We began a sexual experiment in the 60s. This is the kind of place where it is getting us to. I'm thinking about all that kind of misery. And it's all caused, it's all around this issue of sex and sexuality. And really I'm asking, how did this become that? And when I say that, I want you to use your imaginations. I want you to imagine here, there's a mirror, it's perfect. Imagine a mirror, it's absolutely perfect. This mirror... And it somehow represents sex and sexuality as God made it to be. The question I want to ask is this. If you imagine over here a mirror that's all cracked, damaged, broken, distorted. That. How did this become that? How did this in the Garden of Eden, wonderful, beautiful, what's another image for you? If I say this, think about a wonderful garden, beautiful flowers. How did it become that? This weed overgrown, thorns, tangles, etc. How did this become that? This wonderful thing that God created become this broken, divisive, full of hurt thing. And this is important for us. It's important for us as individuals, but it's also important because the world we are living in is so confused by this stuff. So confused. We must know what it is that God says, which is why we're doing this series. I hope I've got your attention this morning and you understand why it's important that we listen to this and we know what God says for ourselves and for others. Let me give you a quick summary of last week, if you were away. We looked at the first part of this and really Quincy looked at, I suppose, this. He looked at the glory, if you like, of sex and sexuality as God created it to be originally. We went back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 because Jesus said, if you want to know about this stuff, you need to go right back to the beginning. You need to go back to the Garden of Eden and how God created it to be. And back there, just a quick summary for you. In Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3, the first three verses of the Bible we're introduced to this fact that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all different, all different roles, still part of the Godhead, but different roles, work together to create everything. And just because God has got different roles, what we saw was that they, were, they worked together in a complementary way. And so creation itself reflects that. Creation itself is supposed to reflect the complementary way in which God, Father, Son, Spirit, and Jesus worked together to create everything. And every time God created something that reflect something of that three-in-one God working together, God said, it's good. And we looked at, therefore, how he made things like light and darkness. Very different. Couldn't get any more different. And yet they're complementary. They belong together. He said, that's good. 
He wasn't saying it's good because he was showing off at how well he made it. Oh, look, I made darkness. Saying, no, no, something of that difference but complementarity of light and darkness that makes a day is good. And something of that reflects me because I'm God in three persons, the same but different. That's part of what he was saying. And we looked at the sky and the earth, and he says about wet oceans and dry lands. And we looked at how he made days for work and days for rest, all different but belonging together, complementary, and all, all displaying something of who God is, what God is like. And he declares it all to be good. And then God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, makes the pinnacle of his creation. When he makes humans, when he makes you and me, he says, that's very good. <laughs> that's very good. And so you've got to look at Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, which I put in your notes. It says, then God says, let us make mankind in our image. He's talking to the Godhead. This is the Father talking to the Son and the Spirit. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, livestock, wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So when God makes the human race and he sees a man and a woman, he knows they're going to unite together and out of them is going to come children like Jacob, offspring. He sees something of his own divine reflection. It's like a mirror and he's he doesn't say that's good. He says, that's very good. That's really good. That's what really reflects us. Male, female, together, having offspring, reflects something of us. Jesus, Holy Spirit, don't you reckon? It's really what he's saying. So how did this become that? How did it all get so complicated? How did it all get so distorted? We need some answers. The world we live in needs some answers, do you not think? Quincy does, and Tim backs him up, so that's good. You only have to go to the third chapter of Genesis, and we start to find those answers. Because immediately it begins to talk about the devil, the one who comes to kill and to destroy and to steal. See, the devil is real. He wants people either, either to believe he's does not real, or he wants them to believe that he's some kind of pantomime villain. But if you're a Christian here this morning, you've got to know what the Bible says about the devil. And when you look at how did this glorious thing called sex and sexuality that should have brought such joy to people because of everything, it reflects something of the image of God. How did it go so wrong? We've got to understand that there is one who loves to turn things 180 degrees around and use that which should have been the most joyful thing and turn it into one of the most destructive things. And his name is the devil. He hates God. He hates God and he hates the image of God. And therefore, he hates human beings. He hates men and women. He hates men and women being men and women and coming together in a complementary way because that is what displays the image of God. And so we see it right here. Genesis 3, 1 says, The snake representing the devil said to the woman, Did God really say? 
Did God really say? And it's one of the key parts, one of the key issues as we're looking through this series. Did God really say? Because I know that as we look at this series, because it's so against what our culture says, because it's so against what many of us have grown up in, the atmosphere that we live in, there will be a voice in your head that will say, did God really say? Is this really the way that we can live? Is this really? Because the culture is so opposed to the Bible. It's like there's a tug of war going on, not just in society, but in people's minds, even in our minds. And you know, there might be a voice in your head saying, did God really say? Let me just tell you, that is the voice of the devil. And unfortunately for Eve, as she's there in the garden with the snake, when he said, did God really say, she believed him. And that, if you like, the image of God in humankind, men and women, became trashed. It's like the garden got wrecked. It's like the mirror got smashed in that moment. And sex and sexuality kind of became the thing that we know it as today. And so this morning, we want to try and understand further how this became that. But please, this is not a message of condemnation, but rather it is a promise of freedom. Because with God, there is always an invitation that if we will turn to him, he will take us back to his original plan. That is God's heart, I believe. So please know if some of this stuff really affects you, I want you to know God is not angry with you. He might be angry with your sin, but he is not angry with you. God is not one who wants to rub your nose in your sin. He's one who wants to wash your sin away. He wants to restore things back to how he always intended them to be. In Proverbs, it says twice, that there's a way that seems right to man, but that way leads to death. And uh, These kind of stuff I've been describing, the misery, the pain, the hurt that is caused when we turn away from God's plan, it seems so right to us. And yet God says it seem, it's a road to death. It's a road to separation from me. But God's heart is always to turn us back to him and back to his plan. So you could say the title of this is, How Did This Become That? Or I could ask you, do you want this or do you want that? He's offering to you and me to have, if you like, this image of God restored in us through our relationship with Jesus and his power working in us. Let me just say, as Quincy said last week, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I'm not expecting you to live like this. I would fall over backwards if you did. It's foolish of the church to think that society is going to live like people who are following Jesus when they're not. We just have to get over that. <laughs> if you're not a Christian, I'm not expecting you to live like this. But if you are a Christian, then there are some verses in 2 Timothy 2, to 26 that is like a call for every Christian and every church. I put it in your notes. It says, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Do not have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful, 
Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. I don't want to bash society over the head for the way it's got sex mixed up, but I would much rather lead them gently to repentance and a place of the truth where they can turn around and God can sort them out. Are you with me? That must be our heart. There's no point us standing there wagging, they're doing that. What does that do? And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Today I want to declare to you freedom. And we're going to look at three areas this morning where I think the devil has caught people in his trap. And like I say, my aim is not to make anyone feel guilty, but my aim is to declare, if you are caught in this trap, there is a way of freedom. So the first one we're going to look at is guilt and shame. There are so many emotions and feeling of guilt and shame around this whole area of sex and sexuality. Let me just say something. If you are the victim of a sexual assault, if somebody else did something to you that you did not want them to, like rape or anything else, you need to know that the Bible makes it crystal clear that you are not guilty of a sin. You did nothing wrong. The Bible says that it does not always take two to tango. The Bible says that it wasn't your fault. The Bible says you were not asking for it. It was not your fault. But the Bible also recognizes that if you have been the victim of anything like that, the shame that you probably feel is very real and has a way that that shame can be removed from you. So that's one, if that's you, I just want you to know that. But I also just want to say that, you know, if you've engaged in sexual activity willingly, no one forced you, you, you were a willing participant, then in a way you've got to understand this, you are a kind of victim too. Not like the first group I spoke about, but you are a kind of victim because you've been hoodwinked by the devil to believe that it's okay to enjoy sex and sexuality. It won't cause you any damage. You've been sold a lie by the devil that this is the right way to be. It won't cause any damage. You are a victim of sorts. And the good news for you, if that's you, is that you've got to understand God wants to free you from that feeling of guilt this morning. I heard a true story about a girl who grew up in church She had so many sexual partners, she couldn't even remember their names. And when she decided she wanted to turn back to Jesus, she didn't even know if she could because of all the guilt and the shame that she felt. See, society has got no answer to the guilt and the shame that people feel from the sex they have. All they can do is is work on denial. All they can do is make a lot of noise. Make a lot of noise to drown out those feelings of guilt and shame. You've got nothing to feel guilty for. Everyone's doing it. It's natural. This is what you should be doing. Blah, 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 blah. Or drink. Drink, 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 drink. Or drugs, drugs, drugs. Have something that's going to numb the pain of the feelings of guilt and shame that you feel. That's all society has got to offer people who feel guilty and ashamed. But the problem is that people do still feel guilty. And ashamed. They still feel dirty from some of these things. And that guilt and that shame actually makes them run away from the only one who can actually sort, themselves, sort them out. So 
So my pastor friend who met with this girl shared the verse in 1 John 1, verse 8 and 9, which I put in your notes, where it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. John's saying, look, if you pretend there's no guilt, no shame, right? A lot of noise, la, 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 doesn't matter, won't hurt you, la, 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 drown out the feeling. God, Jesus can't help you. He can't help you because you're just covering your ears. You're just trying to block it out. But if you will acknowledge our feelings of guilt and shame before him, then he will cleanse us. He'll cleanse us. He won't, he won't just brush it under the carpet. He won't just try and numb the pain. He won't just try and dull the noise. No, no, guess what he'll do? He'll cleanse us. He'll take the feelings of guilt and shame away. So whether you've sinned sexually or been sinned against sexually, whether, that, whether it's, it's, it's the shame of somebody else that's kind of been put on you or whether it's your own guilt for what you have done, Whatever you're grappling with on the inside, God wants to say to you today, you can be free. He wants to say to this society, you can be free of all this. How did this become that? It's all these things. And yet God says, you can be cleansed. You can be free of them if you will let him. Think about Jesus, the perfect man, right? The perfect mirror of the image of God And yet he allowed humans to nail him to a cross. Really, Jesus was this. He was that. He's perfect. But he allowed us on the cross to turn him into that, to break him and smash him, distort him. So that if we will turn to Jesus, he might be able to take us who are like that and turn us back into this. Does everybody get that? That's the gospel right there. You believe any other gospel, you've not believed the gospel that I believe in. Even as Jesus dies on the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. About the people that have crucified him. And if you're trapped in the devil's snare, re sexual sin, Jesus' cry over you this morning, I think, is, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. They've been trapped by the devil, they've been, tra- they've been trapped by him to use their bodies to do something which doesn't bring honour to you and is going to cause harm to them. Father, please set them free. We mustn't hide sin from God. He knows it. We must bring it into the light, not cover it up, be set free from it. So that's the first area, guilt and shame. Are you still with me? Good. You'll love the second part then. The second one we're going to look at is pornography. It's fascinating this. I, uh, I was reading the paper a few weeks ago and they had a thing there about if you had loads of money to invest, what would you invest it in? Did a survey and they asked people, Joe Bloggs on the street, what would you invest in and what don't you want to invest in? Right? What don't you want to invest in? What wouldn't you invest in? Number five, animal testing. Number four on the list was arms and weapons. Number three was gambling. Number two was tobacco. Number one with over 90%. What was it? Pornography. Well, don't invest my money in that. Terrible. Just bear that in mind when I go through some of the stats that I'm going to give you. See, in Matthew 5, Jesus teaches about pornography when he says, don't look at a woman lustfully, because if you do, you've kind of committed adultery with her in your heart. And he says things like, it'd be better to gouge your eye out 
uh, rather than keep looking at her. And sometimes people say, isn't that over the top? I mean, even if we know Jesus didn't mean it literally, even the sentiment behind it is surely too much. But maybe when we step back and look at the damage that pornography does to us, to people around us, to people involved, maybe we would have a different attitude. I want to give you four things about pornography. Number one, pornography makes men mistreat women. Here's a quote from one psychologist. Pornography shapes and rewires us in a way that we become unable to see women as we should. We no longer direct our sexual drives in appropriate ways. Pornography makes men think women want sex, not friendship. If you've ever watched a pornographic movie, did you ever see people cuddle, hold hands, have a conversation? See, it trains men to think women want sex, and they want sex in all kinds of bizarre ways, trains men to think that women mean yes when they say no. It trains men to think that basically women exist to serve them sexually. A survey by the charity Teen Boundaries of 7,000 teenage boys asked this question. Is it true or false that women fantasize about being raped? All but a handful of those boys who had accessed pornography said, yes, I do think women fantasize about being raped. We are kidding ourselves if we don't think that what we look at affects our opinions and our behavior. See, it's, it, it changes them. It's training them. They're only 13, 14. They're very impressionable. It's shaping their opinions. And, and the world is as confused. Society is confused. In the same news feed, we hear about the terrible Harvey Weinstein and all that he's doing. And the same news feed talks about the pioneer Hugh Hefner and the Bunny Girls. The world's so confused, so distorted, messed up. But God wants us to be free. This is damaging if you're a married man. It's like what happens, I believe, in Zimbabwe when they devalue the currency. If you're a married man and you are looking at other women and finding sexual pleasure and satisfaction in that, you are devaluing your own marriage. You're actually stealing from yourself because the truth is that you're less likely to find satisfaction that you're looking for in the marriage that you have and the wife that you have because you're spending your time fantasizing and look at, looking at women who are not yours and who are not even real in that sense. They're not having a relationship with you. And most likely your wife will sense that she's competing with this unknown person and will probably sense that withdraw from you even if she's not watching what you're watching. And this is not just a guy thing. Haven't listened to these stats. The latest stats are that 70% of men aged 18 to 34 in the UK regularly access pornography. 70%. It also showed that 33% of women aged 18 to 34 in the UK regularly access pornography. It also has a hugely damaging effect on single people. If you're single and watching pornography, how are you ever going to meet someone who is going to live up to your expectations that you can then settle down with? When you are constantly bombarding yourself with comparative images of people who are willing to do anything, anytime, anywhere. Let me just tell you, if that is you this morning, they are not real. They are real people, but they are not in a real relationship. They are not with another, but that's not real. But it is forming your opinions. It's forming your expectations 
for life. Number two, pornography damages children. You don't go down to the corner shop anymore and buy the magazine off the top shelf and walk away in a brown bag. But because adults want pornography on demand, it pops up on computers, machines, iPads. Because adults have control of the internet, but we want it on demand, and therefore it pops up on the things that our children have access to. So get this one. By the age of 11, most children in the UK have seen pornography. By the age of 11. One survey recently found that 80%, 80%, 8 0, 8 in 10, 80 out of 100. Teenagers aged 15 to 17 in the UK had already graduated to watching hardcore pornography on multiple occasions. Are you shocked by this? Oh, we should be shocked by this. Learning about sex by watching pornography is like studying for your driving test by watching the Fast and Furious movies. It is not going to help. It is going to end badly. It is going to be like a car crash. I think God would say to us as a society, you are damaging your own children because you're distorting the image of God in the next generation. But I can set you free if you turn to me. Number three, here's a kicker. Pornography funds sexual exploitation around the world. See, it's a form of prostitution. For every one empowered woman who goes on the chat show and said that her life as a prostitute has led to freedom and self this and self that, there are thousands upon thousands who are ruined, chewed up, spat out by the system. It's a $100 billion industry. Even the people who don't pay to watch porn become customers because then the companies sell their details to others so that they can sell things to them. It's weird this as well. It's weird how it seems that we can be very passionate as a society about some things like fair trade coffee or reusable plastics. And these are worthy issues completely. And yet the same people seem to care nothing about the fact that the pornography that they're accessing is funding gangs and violence and sexual exploitation and prostitution. I think it's like somehow for some people it's like we know that's wrong but we can't face up to that. So what I'm going to do is I'm now going to put my efforts into making a better world. Let's all share a coffee cup. I don't mind sharing a coffee cup. But it's like we're doing that and turning our back on this thing over here. I can't deal with that. So I'm not going to crusade against that. That's what it feels like to me sometimes. Number four. You still with me? Number four. Pornography defiles the image of the glory of God in us. When we look at pornography, it's like you're seeing something that God made so wonderful and beautiful and unique and as his wedding gift to people when they get married. And it's like we're looking at that like we're trashing it, like we're somehow defiling it, trashing it. If you're a Christian, you can't be watching that stuff Monday to Saturday then come on a Sunday and, hey, praise Jesus. But I believe God wants to bring freedom from the power and the pollution of pornography. He says this in Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, 
and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is right. Jesus has forgiven us to free us from the power and the pollution of sin. He hasn't just saved us so that we go to heaven when we die. He is about a holy living now, being purified from wickedness, being self-controlled, eager to do what is good. Like it says in Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Let me just say, pornography and all this kind of sexual stuff, the world, I think, would say, this is the road to freedom. This is the road to self-expression and being the fullest self you could be. You're on a road to freedom. Let me just tell you, it's the road to slavery. What the world calls freedom, the Bible calls slavery. So messed up. The world wants answers. The world wants answers. It doesn't want this answer. (laughs) So he keeps on drowning out the noise. It's okay. The more of us that do it, it's okay. It doesn't want this answer, but this is the truth. And this is what God says. Number three. Ooh, my time is zipping. Okay, number three. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Look into sex to satisfy us. See, God created us to find satisfaction in him. At the very heart of everything I've been talking about, all the sin and the damage. It's the fact that God created us to find satisfaction in him, in relationship with him. And whenever we turn from that path, we are in trouble. And the fact is that what we've done is we've taken something that God declared to be good, if you like, uh, namely sex, and we've turned it into a God itself. That's really what has happened. You might think I'm being over the top there. Sometimes I think it's difficult if you live in a culture like ours. We get so used to it. But you know, if you go to some parts of the world, you get to see what gods they worship. Go to India, you see the statues, see the temples. You come to the UK, you'll see billboards of beautiful women. You'll see uh, images on our phones, computer screens of what we worship. Let me give you this graphic example of how we as a nation. I think, worship sex as a god. There was a song by Ariana Grande called God is a Woman. And in the video, as she's singing, she's depicted and she's in the place of God in the famous painting by Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel of God creating the world. All right? So get the picture. Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo, fantastic picture. And where the face of God is in the painting, there's Ariana Grande singing. And, and, and as God will be pointing down to listless Adam and bringing him life, there is her singing in the place of God. Things like, baby, lay me down and let's pray. Baby, take my hand, save your soul. And boy, if you confess, you might get blessed. You love it how much I move you. You love it how I touch you. My one, when all said and done, you'll believe God is a woman. And I feel it after midnight, a feeling you can't fight, my one, it lingers when we're done. You'll believe God is a woman. And in the video, she sits on top of the world, controlling the weather. She's a goddess. And she tweeted this. Sex is empowering. It's the source of all life. Sex is empowering. It's the source of all life. You see, God is the source of all life. And he created God as the mechanism 
But when you take God out of the equation, what do people do? They begin to worship the mechanism because there's no God. Do you understand? That's what she is saying here. It's about as blatant as you'll see. She's saying, look, in our world, if you want to be satisfied, you'll find it through being the perfect man, the perfect woman, perfect sex life, the perfect definition of your sexuality, when actually what she is describing is that distorted mirror. Truth is that if you try and put on any relationship, any marriage relationship, the burden of trying to satisfy you, all your needs, in the way that God alone can satisfy you, you'll suffocate the relationship, which is why so many relationships break down. No man, no woman in the world can satisfy us like the God who created us and created us with needs that needed to be met, but that only he could meet. It's why the real issue we're talking about around this is not sexual sin. It's not pornography. Those are byproducts. Those are symptoms. They're not the cause. The root issue is the fact that we look to other things for satisfaction, for pleasure, for fulfillment. We look to creative things like sex instead of looking to the creator himself. But the wonderful news is that God wants to set us free from these things. Anything I've been talking about, if they affect you in your life, God wants to set you free. If they're a big part, he wants to set you free. If they're a small part, he doesn't want it growing any bigger. If Jesus on the cross can cry out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How much more will Jesus cry out over you? Father, forgive them. Let me land this. It says in Galatians 5, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says the acts of the flesh are obvious. I've highlighted a few to you, but not everyone. But you know the things that you are doing that God doesn't want you to do, which might be making your heart beat a bit faster now. I can't mention them all. It probably wouldn't be appropriate. But the Bible says it doesn't matter because the acts of the flesh are obvious. We know. And then Paul goes on to list a whole load of other sins, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. He's not saying sexual sins are worse. He's saying, look at this terrible list of sins. And he warns them. He says, look, if you haven't made Jesus Lord of all, then you haven't made him Lord at all. This is life and death as far as Paul is concerned. But then the very next verse, he moves on and he pleads with them. And he pleads, I believe, with us, encouraging us to find freedom in the name of Jesus. Very next verse, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is a description of the life that God can enable us to leave, live if we're willing to lay down our lives, including our bodies, for him. Jesus says, I've been crucified for you. Now, will you crucify yourself for me daily? Will you lay down your body, your desires and your passions for me? Jesus is saying, I've done everything to wipe out the penalty and the pollution of sin. I've done everything so that I can turn that 
back into this. I can turn you back, including your sex and your sexuality, into how God planned it to be, but you're going to need to crucify yourself. But that's the invitation. That's the invitation to you. It's the invitation for a confused world. Paul said earlier in this chapter that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. Freedom from life-controlling sins. Freedom from trying to find satisfaction in something that will not give you satisfaction, but will simply keep telling you that you have to go deeper, deeper, further, further, more, 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 in order to be satisfied. And by the time you realize that, it's far too late, and you are trapped in the devil's schemes. Paul says there is freedom in Christ. But we have to make a decision. We have to make a decision. We can either live the way that the world lives, so messed up, so confused, proclaiming freedom but not living in any of it, or we can lay down our lives, we can make Jesus Lord of every area of our life, including our bodies, and we can ask him to set us free. I'm just going to pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that it is and was for freedom that you suffered and died that we might be clean of sin, that we might be sprung from the devil's trap. And I just pray right now for my brothers and sisters here, for anyone who feels that they have been trapped by the lies of the devil, whether through things they've done or things that they've had done to them, Lord, I pray that they will turn to you and that you will bring them freedom and cleansing In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask you for it, for your glory. Amen. Great, thanks.